you know, language is, uh, is interesting because over time, language changes. And so what it used to mean at one point starts to mean different things later on. So I thought this was kind of interesting. The word awful, uh, you may not know this or not, but go back a thousand years and it meant something very different, right? So for example, if you said to your, your spouse, that dinner you made was awful, if you said it today versus you said it a thousand years ago, it'd be different. If you said a thousand years ago, it meant awe-inspiring. It meant it was incredible. It was wonderful. You say it today and you're wearing it, right? So things have changed that way. Uh, terrible is another one that's interesting. Uh, terrible used to just mean that it was, you know, full of dread and, and terror and scary. So if someone was terrible, it, it you know, it meant that. And, and so now terrible just means it's lousy, it's bad, it's no good. And so it's a little bit similar, but it's not quite the same, right? So it, for example, my singing is terrible, right? It is both, uh, you know, terrifying as well as lousy. But um, my, my favorite one, though, is, is the word nice. Nice sounds so sweet, right? It sounds so kind. But this could get you into trouble, or you can have some fun with it, depending on how you go with it. But you go back 500 years, and the word nice actually meant foolish. It meant ignorant. It meant, meant someone who is naive. And so if, if someone's really, you know, ticking you off, and, and you want to, like, kind of just, you know, put a little dig in there and say, oh, you're so nice. But uh, so, so language changes. That's what makes it hard to communicate. It's hard to make sure that you're, everyone's on the same page. And so we want to we be really careful then when it comes talking about the gospel. Because that's not something you want to mess around with. That's not something you want to have uh, any kind of ambiguity around. And, and so we want to make sure that we understand uh, terms and understand concepts when we, when we speak properly. And, and so we're going to, this morning, we're going to talk about this thing called grace. And, and grace is a theme, and it's going to be something we're going to talk a lot about uh, at New Life here. Uh, but we're going to kind of try to resist the temptation of trying to come up with a, a narrow definition of grace or a simple definition of grace. And, and I think because the reality is grace itself prohibits that. It doesn't allow us to have any kind of simple definitions. It's, it's too big because really grace is the person of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's difficult to really kind of nail down a simple definition. So this morning what I'm going to hope to do is take a look at why we need grace why grace is so important. And, and that's, I think, critical for us to answer, especially today, living in the kind of world, the kind of culture that we live in, right? We live in a very post-Christian, post-absolute truth culture where everything is relative and everything is tolerant of others to the point that we're now actually intolerant of our Christian heritage, of our Christian roots. It's a culture where terms like sin and sanctification, they've either been rejected or they've been completely forgotten. No one even knows what they mean anymore. And, and as I was thinking about that, I don't know which one's better, to just ignore it or forget about it. it it's a time where if someone says the word righteous, then people are going to look at them and wonder, either they're stuck in the 90s as a surfer or they watch too many Bill and Ted movies as growing up, right? So, you know, we've kind of lost sight of, of, of some of these terms. And so it's, it's no longer uh, sufficient to explain to someone that they've sinned and they're a sinner in need of salvation and, and they need to come to Jesus. That, that message today is now seen as narrow-minded and therefore rejected because it's intolerant. And so we can lament, we can complain about our culture and scream at it, but it would be as, about as effective as screaming at a jet engine or trying to have a, a logical, smart discourse on, on Twitter. It's just not going to work. It's not going to matter anything. 
The good news is, though, it's not our goal to affect culture. It's, we don't need to try to change the culture. Instead, we have to realize that as individuals change, culture changes. And so that's what we're after. So we're after how do I, how do I connect with people without having the same old reference points? Now, please understand, I'm not saying that we need to make the, the gospel more relevant and, and, and more up-to-date and so forth, because the gospel is always relevant. It has nothing to do with the culture. It's, it's needed for this world, and it's, it's good on its own. We just need to understand the gospel. We need to understand what we're offering to people. And so we can accomplish this, I think, if we understand the gospel is gospel in a sense that's bigger than just a, uh, the culture, something that's transcendent of the culture or cross-cultural. And I think it starts with understanding that when every one of us, when we arrived here on this planet, we arrived with some fundamental questions. Some, some concerns or some thoughts about, you know, who I am and what my place is in this story. And, and because these questions are universal and they span culture, then I think it makes it a lot easier for us to understand them and relate to one another. People, relate to one another. And what I mean by that is they're, they're not dependent upon just your upbringing. They're not dependent on your, your nature and your skill set and your temperament. They're not based on whether your dad was a plumber, a mailman, or a president of a company, or if he was a stay-at-home dad, or you had no dad. These are questions that are universal. And the only difference really being, I think, they're, although the question at the heart is the same, they're a little bit different for men than they are for women. So for men, men spend their whole lives trying to answer the question, do I have what it takes? I like how John Eldridge puts it. He says, that's the question that haunts every man. It's a question that doesn't go away. It's a, it's a question that we're, we're always kind of sitting there on the back of, our, back of our mind. And what that means is that all the choices we make, whether they're consciously or even subconsciously, they're often an attempt to prove that I do, in fact, have what it takes. And if I don't, then I end up trying to run and hide from it, to, to numb the disappointment. So as men, we, we attempt to prove that through our careers. We do it through titles. You know, I'm the president. I'm the executive vice president. I'm the senior management of, you know, international affairs, whatever, right? We, we create all these fancy titles, uh, whether it be in sports or hobbies. You know, have you, it's what drives men to be so competitive. And have you ever noticed how, how for guys, everything becomes a competition so quickly? And it's partly because how we're wired. And, and that's not bad. It's just, just how, how we're made. And for example, I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a woman's idea to have a hot dog eating contest. That, that a, I can't imagine a woman sat down and says, you know, you know, it'd be a lot of fun. Let's see how many, you know, ground up pig snots and intestines and, and other bits that we normally throw in the trash. How, how, how many can we stick, stick in your mouth in one in half hour? That would, let's find out, right? I bet you I could do more. I can't imagine women doing that, right? Only guys are stupid enough to do something like that. And why would we do something like that? It's because maybe I can be the best at that. And if I can be the best at something, if I can prove myself in anything, even as something as foolish as, as eating as many hot dogs as you can, then that means something to me. The problem is, eventually, the guy's going to come to a realization that he doesn't always measure up to the challenge. He's not always going to be there. He's not always going to be smart enough and the strong enough and most powerful enough. And eventually, he's going to be exposed as a failure in some area. 
And so at this point, what does he do? For a lot of guys, they begin to hide. They begin to kind of bluff their way through life, pretending they have it all together. Look at me over here where I'm successful. Just don't look over here where I can't seem to get it together. Or maybe what he does is he begins to, to buy a, a new boat or a bigger boat or gets another car and goes on vacations and bigger screen TV, all hiding the fact that it's all paid with a larger line of credit because it's all about the show. It's all about broadcasting a message that everything is fine, everything is okay. Look how successful I am. All the while, he begins to retreat and hide from those challenges where he feels like he's exposed as a father, as a, as a husband. And so he begins to withdraw into his hobbies. Maybe it's fishing, maybe it's sports. Because uh, the reason is in those areas, it's far easier to control the outcome. You're far more likely to be able to be a success there. And then when you can't escape the disappointment of the failure, then we start to hide. And we start to hide in, in our man caves, watching Netflix and sports and maybe indulging in, in addictions just to numb the pain that at the time don't feel like they hurt that much, but end up costing our soul in great ways. For women, the question is similar, but I think it's a little bit different in that it's still related to their worth and their value, but they ask it in a slightly different way. For women, I think the question is really twofold. They're haunted by the question, am I enough and am I too much? Think about how many times, you ladies, you've, you've asked yourselves these enough type of questions. Am I pretty enough? Am I skinny enough? Am I doing enough? Am I, am I eating healthy enough? Am I doing enough as a parent? Am I good enough wife friend, or Christian? And then the other side of the question is the fear that maybe you're too much. How many times have you had these types of questions or thoughts? Do I talk too much? Am I too insecure? Am I too confident? Am I too much of a mess? Am I too much of a burden? Am I too much of a wreck? Am I, am I too weak? Am I too strong? Am I too crazy? Am I too much to handle? Am I enough and am I too much? Women often at this point, what she'll do is she'll, she'll look to her relationships with friends or with men and hope to, that if others can accept her, if others will love her, that will bestow value and worth upon her. And it's partly why women struggle with their, their body image so much. And as if I need to tell you, at this point, I think it's well understood, but, but just look at the messages that are beamed consistently at women. That if somehow they apply this cream or if they do these exercises or have this diet, that they can somehow look 10 to 20 years younger and finally lose those last 10 to 20 pounds. And then, and only then will they be beautiful. Because they have so much riding on their beauty in terms of whether they're loved and accepted. And the hope isn't just that men will accept them. In fact, to be honest, I think women look to be noticed by other women more than they do with men. Because they, so often women have this, this false notion that, that there's only so much love to go around. That's in limited supply. And so I need to not just look beautiful, but I need to look more beautiful than others. Because if I don't, then I won't be noticed and won't be accepted. And so women compete with one another. 
Think about, have you ever watched those award shows and they get the red carpet and all the, the girls dress up and walk down the, the carpet and then immediately afterwards you have the TV programs that just rip into who is the best dress, who is the worst dress. I can't believe she wore that. What was she thinking? And all the criticism, all the, the backbiting and undermining going on there. For other women, they're, they're going to look to their family, their children, what kind of a parent they are. Maybe they look to their job and their career. Particularly as Christians, women start to evaluate, how do I compare to that Proverbs 31 mythical unicorn of a woman who seemingly had it all, was able to do everything and yet never sleep and was just work, work, work. And, And there's so many things that we compare ourselves, but it really all comes down to the question is, am I enough? Am I too much? Am I worthy of being loved? And really, that's the heart of it for both men and women. For men, if if I have what it takes, I'm worthy of being loved. For women, if if I can, if I'm not too much and I am enough, then I'm worthy of being loved. The problem is with all that men and women do, no matter how successful you are today, tomorrow's a brand new day. And the cycle begins. And you got to prove again to yourself that you have to do it, that you do have enough. Now, maybe if you'd grown up in a perfect family, maybe if you grew up and and you had great teachers and wonderful friends and and nothing bad ever happened to you, then maybe then you'd have a chance at interpreting life in a way that says, you know what, you are enough. You're not too much. You have what it takes. And maybe you had a chance at forming a healthy self-esteem. But the reality is, I don't know if that's ever happened to anyone. Instead, we've all been hurt. We've been bullied, taken advantage of, rejected, used, victimized in so many ways, often repeatedly. And to make it worse, it's often done by those who ought to have been the ones to protect us, ought to have been the ones to build us up and to to give that positive self-image. They've been the ones to cause the most pain. And so what ends up happening is it begins a lifetime of a struggle of trying to prove ourselves. And it goes, the reason that it's there, because the origin of that struggle goes all the way back to the garden. That's why it's cross-cultural. It isn't localized to one nation or one group of people within that nation. It's all about man because it goes back to the garden. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we read about the creation of the world and everything in it. And, and it talks about how, you know, creation was good, but when man was made, when God made this beautiful creation of, of the male version of man and the female version of man, God looked at it and he says, it is very good. And we were in this paradise. That's, that's literally what Eden translates to, paradise. Oh, it must have been so clean and so fresh. Oh, what a sight it would have been to see what, what Eden was like. I bet you, I bet you the, the grass was super soft. And when you lay down there, it was just like, a, like lying in a bed and there'd be no allergies, no mosquitoes, right? It would just be perfect. And, and it would be, you know, the fruit there would be a hundred times or a million times sweeter than the sweetest fruit you've ever tasted. It would have been so beautiful and so incredible. What's interesting is what God wants us to know about Eden. The one thing he goes into detail about this paradise, at the very end of chapter 2 of Genesis, he says that both man and woman were naked 
and unashamed. Naked meaning they had nothing to hide. They had nothing to be embarrassed about. They, they had nothing that they were worried about the other person finding out about them. But more than that, I think there was an intimacy that the two of them had. It was more than just, I think, a physical nakedness. I think it was a nakedness in their soul and their spirit, that they were able to connect and see each other. Imagine this. They never had to have the fear. They never worried with the thought, if you only knew what I was thinking. I mean, I can't even imagine what that world would be like. And yet they had no fear because they had such a, a healthy confidence in themselves. But all that changed. All that disappeared the moment they ate from that wrong tree. The moment that they, they betrayed God and, and they didn't heed his warning. The warning was, there are two trees here and you can eat from any tree you want, just don't eat from this one tree in particular, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That warning was, was there for our good. He wasn't, he wasn't warning us of the punishment that he was going to strike us down dead because of his anger and his, his attitude towards us. That warning was there because it was a consequence. And the consequence was the result of choosing independence, of trying to find life on our own terms. And yet they didn't heed the warning. And so they ate, only proving that God was right, that they experienced death in that moment because in that moment, they chose independence. In that moment, they were disconnected from God as their source of life because he ultimately was the source of their self-esteem. And so immediately, they're plunged into death. And so what's the first thing they do? They hide, but not from God yet. That comes later. The first thing they did is they hid from each other. They realized their eyes were open. They realized they were naked, and they hid from each other in terror and in fear. Why? Think about it. Was, it. was it wrong for Adam and Eve to see each other naked? They're married. Of course not. Do you think something magically happened to their bodies that suddenly they became disfigured and they were embarrassed by that? No, of course not. But for the first time now, they had all this self-doubt. They had all these questions about themselves. And they had all this, this fears. Maybe Adam's looking at himself and he's looking at Eve and he's thinking, I don't know, am I man enough? Am I strong enough? Am I attractive to her? Am I big enough? I, I don't know. I don't think I am. And if I don't think I am, there's no way she does. And so he hid. And Eve, she's looking at Adam going, I'm different. Is that okay? Am I, am I feminine enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I okay? And so she begins to hide. And they're so worried. Because this, this shame says to, the, to them that, you know, it begins with a whisper sometimes. Other times it's screaming at them. But there's this constant taunt that says, if anyone ever found out about you, if they ever knew the real you, you'd be in so much trouble. At best, they'd just walk away from you. At worst, they reject you and hurt you. But you would deserve it because you're really not that good. And you'd end up all alone in this world. And so that shame, that's really the death they experienced. Too often we've, we've taken that death and say, well, it was a spiritual death. That means they were separated from God. And that's our simple definition for it. And all that definition does is it allows us to put a neat bow on it, but not really understand it. 
We're no further ahead with that understanding. That, that death was more than a physical death. It was much more than just that, oh, our bodies are decaying over time. That's true. The death, I think, at the heart of it was, as a result of that disconnection, was this shame, this sense of, I'm not okay anymore. And, and it's a shame that every person struggles with just in varying degrees. There are some people who have a lot of shame and they struggle with it greatly. And there are some that have some shame. But we all have some. It's the product of the, of the garden, the product, the product of the fall. And what's interesting to me is whereas Adam's sin in that garden at the beginning led to shame entering this world, it's shame that now leads to sin. If you think about it, all sin that we employ, all sin that we do are our attempts to medicate our shame, to feel better about ourselves or just to not feel bad about ourselves, to numb the pain. And so here's the problem. When we make the focus of our gospel all about the behavior, then just stop the sin, we miss what's driving it. We miss, we miss the point that the gospel is about life and death. It's about overcoming that sense of shame and that, that sense of emptiness. It's much more than just forgiving the sins. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not important. It's critical important. But Jesus never said, I've come to forgive your sins. Instead, he said repeatedly, I've come that you'd have life because that's what it's about. It's about life, and you need life because of the death that we were experiencing. But sadly, I think the church has made it all about the behavior. And so what happens now is we focus on that behavior. Now we focus on your effort. We just got to start doing more. You still got to work harder, and you, you got to overcome those sins, and, and then maybe everything will be okay. But here's what happens. A message gets sent. Maybe it's inadvertently, although in some places I'm pretty sure it's actually intentional. But it's a dangerous message that says that you're not really going to be worthy of that love until you get your act together. I mean, sure, God loves you, but he's not really pleased with you. In fact, the love he has for you is one that really, he just tolerates you. He just kind of puts up with you, but he's really disappointed in what's going on. And so we think we've got to work harder. The problem is there's no amount of work that will make it, make it work. There's nothing you can do to, on your own to overcome that shame. Because the whole idea that your, your shame is rooted in what you do today is flawed. The shame goes all the way back to the garden. But the good news is that this is, this is why we have Grace. This is, this, is the, this is what grace is to be the answer to, this, this sense of feeling inadequate, this sense of not being enough or too much or not having what it takes. And so it's that point in the story where everything changes. Have you ever seen that in movies where things are going one way and suddenly everything changes? It's like in Star Wars, right, where, where it looks like the emperor is about to kill Luke and then Vader comes along and he turns and he throws the emperor over. Or in Die Hard, right, when Hans Gruber is about to, you know, kill um, uh, John McClane's wife, but McClane's got the gun tape behind him, right? Or am I a little bit different than you guys, right? But it's that moment where everything's going to change. That's where grace comes in. 
See, grace comes to our rescue because the love and acceptance you need as a person has to be independent of your performance. It has to be disconnected from what you do. And because of that, it's a grace that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one we need to go to for that love. He's the one that we need to go to to find that acceptance and that worth. Listen to how Paul put it when he was talking about how the Gentiles compared to the Jews were able to find that grace. See, the, the Gentiles, they didn't have the law. They didn't care about the rules and the performing and measuring up. That wasn't on their agenda. But for the Jews, that's all it was. Follow the rules. They had 613 commands to follow. In fact, they had more than that because then they took those 613 commands and made subcommands about what it meant to follow those 613 commands. And for them, it was all about measuring up. And so Paul writes to the Romans and he says, what should we say? That the Gentiles who didn't care about performing, who did not pursue this righteousness, this acceptance, this love, this worth, they obtained it. In fact, they obtained the very righteousness, the very love and worth that's by faith. They put their faith in God and what Jesus did on the cross was enough. That his statement on that cross says, you are enough and I love you. No matter what. No, no strings attached, no qualifiers, no when and if, just I love you. But the Jews, but Israel, he goes on, he says, they pursued the law as a way of, they pursued the law as a way of righteousness, meaning that they thought they could earn it. They thought they could work for it, but they never obtained their goal. They never got there. Because that idea is like, it's so flawed. It's like having a casino rig. You're guaranteed to lose. If you think you can earn love, if you think you can somehow improve yourself to be worthy of it, you'll never be enough. To put it another way, if you're not fully loved and accepted and worthy today, you'll never be. Because what can you add to what God's already done? But if we're honest, I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, we would admit that there's a struggle at times. But that struggle points to us that we're still trying to earn something that we're still, we're still looking for evidence to prove that I'm value and, and, worth, and worth something rather than just simply looking to Jesus. And so it's in that moment that I need to look to him for that unconditional love. There's a phrase. There's a term that we've used often, right? Unconditional love. But again, I think it's one of those things that we've defined but never really understood. Because unconditional love is literally impossible in this world. It's not of this world. Think about how, how love works in our society, in our world, right? Think about it this way. Boy meets girl. Boy likes girl. Boy notices girl's cute. And, and girl laughs at boy's jokes. That's important. And so boy loves girl. Girl meets boy. Girl sees boy as handsome, boy as kind, boy treats her nicely. That's important. Girl loves boy. What do we see here? That what ends up happening is we're, we are attracted to what's beautiful. We're attracted to what's right and, and what we like. And, and, and the love is a response to that beauty. That love is a response to what's good. 
And so really the love that we share is a conditional love. And, and so now, now there's that pressure. Well, what if I'm not kind? What if I'm not beautiful? What if I diminish in these areas? Then my love will disappear. But God works differently. Imagine it in these ways. Boy meets girl. Girl is mean to boy. She's cruel to boy. She mistreats him. She spits on him. She rejects him. She teases him. She is an ugly person in every way. And boy loves girl. What would we say about that boy? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. What are you doing? And yet that's the very thing that God did for you and I. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, it talks about how we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, that, that we were under that shame and that misery, that we were following after the God of this world, that we were more aligned with Satan, our father, than we were with God. That we're all chasing after this world and what it had to offer us, looking for love and acceptance, indulging in the desires of the flesh, and we were by nature children of wrath. If I could sum that up, it would be this. We were screwed. We were a mess. We were as ugly as ugly gets. And then verse four. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Loved us with a great love. Notice it had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with your potential, what you might offer one day, that you would grow up and you would change and maybe you go from the ugly ducking to the beautiful swan. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with God. He says, I know you're a mess, but I love you anyways. That's unconditional love. That love that will be there even on your worst day. And that's what we need. So let's close with this. I want you to realize that Jesus knows everything about you. He knows the, the deepest, darkest secret that you're afraid will ever be found out because if it was, everyone would flee and run away from you. He knows about the critical thoughts you have about your friends. He knows um, that sometimes you imagine that you, you kind of wish their life was worse because you're jealous of them. He, he knows about how you, you wish that your life was different. He knows that sometimes you wear your underwear two days in a row just because you didn't want to do laundry because you're lazy. He knows about all the sinful habits. He knows about the addictions. He knows what you struggle against. He even knows the times when you don't struggle against it. And you just give yourself permission to indulge in it. He knows it all. And yet, he still, every day, offers us grace. And that offer of grace is not meant to be a one-time thing. As Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations about his mercies are new every day. You and I need to experience that grace afresh and new every day. And so all he asks of us, he offers this grace and he asks of us, will you believe that my love is enough for you? Will you believe that my opinion, my acceptance of you is greater than if the whole world turn, turned against you? Will you receive that love? 
Will you trust in my love? And will you live from that love? Because the reality is there's nothing as powerful as that love from God. Let's pray. Father, this thing called grace is really the answer to what we need because it sets us free from our fears and our insecurities. It sets us free from the struggles and the battles. If we could just understand this incredible love you have for us. So I invite you, Father, today and this week ahead that we would just be reminded that you would reveal yourself in some really special and unique ways. Minister to our, our hurts and our wounds so that our confidence and our trust in your love for us would grow stronger and stronger. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so parents, go grab your kids, and then we're going to have some refreshments out there. It's probably warmer out there than it is in here. And, uh, and then uh, enjoy hanging out. And then if you can, stick around a little bit later on. We'll start doing the teardown of the chairs and everything, and you're more than welcome to help. But uh, thanks for coming out.